Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. We, we, uh, we're 3.30. We should get started, which is often a good idea for those with the 20-page memo. And I'll, I'll try to talk through the people that don't have the memo. I'll try to cover it. There are 20 pages now and three exhibits, exhibits A, B, and C. And the one I'd like to talk to is exhibit C, which is entitled World Oil Demand Supply. And this is done based on statistics put together by an entity. I think the initials are EIA, which is part of our, the U.S. Department of Energy. And liquid fuel consumption is not the same as crude oil production. And you'll see some lines, those of you who have the 20 pages will see some lines missing down at the bottom. The key line is other liquids. And I'll do my best this weekend to fill those lines in. But the difference between crude and total liquid fuel consumption is NGLs, I think, some condensate and it's a fairly significant number. The, this is a generally accepted number that we're using 100 million barrels a day, and that there's about two and a half in reserve, mostly in Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi. When we talk about crude, with the US producing 11.9, Saudi Arabia 10.4, Russia 10.9, we're not talking total liquids. We're just talking crude. So I hope to be able to improve this chart by next week's call by trying to fill these lines in. What they show for the 22 is a slight inventory build. In other words, based on these EIA numbers, total worldwide production was 100 million barrels a day and total liquid fuel consumption worldwide was 99.4, so there'd be an inventory build. They're predicting more of an inventory build in 23, and then even an inventory build in 24. So this is a fairly bearish case for oil pricing. The problem here in terms of the adherence of much higher oil prices was that the Ukraine war would cause Russia to produce less oil, but Russia in 22 was 10.9 million barrels a day, and they're predicting 10.3 in 23 and 10.1 in 24. And so far, I think year to date in 23, Russia has announced that they're gonna reduce their production by half a million barrels a day. And in fact, that's what's showing, but that isn't anywhere near the amount of reduced production from Russia people thought would happen with sanctions. So I don't think it's the time to rush out and sell stocks that produce oil. But if you have your eye on one that you want to buy or add to a position, I think I I hold off 
a month or two and see how the price of oil behaves. Exhibit B is a new exhibit. It's U.S. gas demand supply. This is a distillation of a four-page memo that's up on the top mark website. And basically what this also shows is that supply exceeds demand. And in 22, U.S. supply was 101 ECF a day, and demand was around 100. So there was about a B a day of storage change. Gas averaged $6 last year as compared to 370 in 21, where it was more or less in balance. The missing piece in this demand supply is LNG. LNG would have been higher in 22, except halfway through the year, one of the LNG facilities, Freeport, with two Bs a day, had, had some kind of a, an event, and they closed it down. Freeport has just started to come up, and that will help. But what will really help is the LNG export facilities under construction will start to come on. Now, <clears throat> I think all that's going to happen as a practical matter in 23 is get Freeport back up to two Bs. But numbers show that another two Bs or so of export demand for LNG in 24. The problem is that supply, which in 2020 was 90 Bs a day, U.S. supply is expected to be around 98 Bs a day this year. So that's up eight. Everything else is flat. During that period, LNG exports are up six. So you have like two Bs of oversupply. That'll be taken care of in time by LNG export. And in fact, if you look at the price of natural gas, what's you know, kind of in the $3 range for 23, it's pretty much up to the $4 range by 25. Once again, your gas stocks are down in a significant way. Will they come down further? Don't know. But will the supply slow down with a lower gas price? Maybe. But those are the things that you have to keep in mind. Once again, I think the gas stocks haven't come down as much as the commodity price has. So I'd be inclined to wait on adding to a gas stock position. And with that... I think that the other exhibit that's here is Exhibit A, and Exhibit A has to do with cash flow statement for the U.S. government. The cash flow statement for the U.S. government shows that we're running a deficit this year, and these are CBO forecasts of a trillion four, and federal debt held by the public is going to be $26 trillion, which is about equal to our GNP. The Biden administration has put out a budget saying that the deficits for the next 10 years, which the CBO forecasts at $20 trillion, they've taken $3 trillion out of it as basically a political statement, I think. The truth is that if you take out Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pensions, and you take out interest, and you take out defense, all other is a trillion four. All other in 2019, before the pandemic, was 900 billion. 
somehow some of that 500 billion of increase has to be pared back. And that's going to be a job for the House and the Senate and the Biden administration. I think they probably will make some progress there. But if they can, and at least hold it flat, which is what the CDO estimates, what happens is the percentage of federal debt held by the public more or less stays in line with GNP, which is a better situation than I would have predicted before doing these numbers. I would predict this is kind of muddled through. Before we get into individual companies, I think we need to talk about what happened to regional banks. Everyone focuses on Silicon Valley Bank, and Mike and Jason have some specific thoughts on that from their background. But really what happened at the end of last week is all regional banks were suspect because it looked like their deposits over and above the FDIC amount at 250000 were going to be moved to another bank or moved into T-bills. Now, what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and the uh, FDIC did over the weekend in consultation with the people that work in the administration for the president is uh, they came up with a plan announced six o'clock Sunday Eastern time in time to be taken account of in trading in Asia to backstop all the deposits. They say that that is not taxpayer funded because it's all going to come out of the FDIC account And as a practical matter, if you take Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank here, they're in liquidation and probably the combination of their assets and their mark-to-market on their securities, which have come down as interest rates have gone up, that probably the FDIC will come out without any loss with these bank liquidations, would be my guess. What brought them about? think what brought it about was banks are allowed to have hold to maturity securities, which they don't mark, and available for sales securities. And if you accumulate a lot of deposits and you have more money than you can put out in loans and you, you have hold to maturity securities, you're really quite vulnerable if interest rates go up and treasury securities come down. And so it looked like the stock probably didn't have a great deal of value. As the stock went down, everyone wanted to take take deposits out. And so I think the FDIC and the U.S. Treasury and the Fed did the right thing. They had to do it. Otherwise, every regional bank would, would be at risk. Now, what are they having worked through last weekend? What have they got in store this weekend? In store this weekend, they have Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is a Swiss bank. Uh, It's been under a lot of stress, going through a reorganization. Uh, There are two large Swiss banks, UBS and Credit Suisse. I don't think the Swiss central bank will backstop all the liabilities, which for a money center bank are not just deposits, but overnight loans to support securities inventories, open transactions with other banks. I personally don't think the Swiss bank, central bank will do that. 
I think what's more likely is an orderly liquidation of Credit Suisse. What that will create is contagion amongst the U.S. money center banks who have open positions with Credit Suisse. And I think the way the Fed may backstop that is the Fed may say their window is open. Whatever collateral you bring in, it relates to Credit Suisse, they'll take in return for a loan from now. The very strong banks will resist using the window for that. But what happens is if you're JP Morgan and you have an open transaction with Credit Suisse for $100 million, rather than getting that $100 million next Tuesday, you're not going to get it for six months or so. So JP Morgan may have enough liquidity and standing confidence in the market, so they'll be able to wait the six months. Anyone who can't wait the six months have access to the Fed window. With that, I've chewed through half our 30 minutes. I want to stand down and see if Mike or Jason have anything that uh, they've heard in my 15 minutes that they disagree with or anything they'd add. I think it's worth talking a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank because it's become a, um, well, there's been a lot of opinions floated whether it would be presidential hopefuls and other people trying to influence the public in one way or another. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, the failure seems to be fairly clearly a crisis of a failure of risk management. The long story short, the company, the company got a huge influx of deposits during the pandemic. And it was mainly a result of stimulus, which pushed interest rates, even long-term interest rates down to zero that, caused a lot of investors think um, you know pension funds and, and other large endowments and whatnot to go further out the risk curve in search of yield which ultimately ended up in venture capital which is essentially uh, the clients that Silicon Valley Bank banks so their deposits tripled which your average bank had about a 30 percent increase in deposits Silicon Valley Bank tripled pretty dramatic change and they didn't they made a mistake that was sort of similar to what you know we talked about um, Shopify for example and Amazon that kind of overdid their plans based on you call it simple trend line assumptions but uh, you know both, both of those companies talk about how they had complex models that had never not worked but you know in the wake of COVID and increasing interest rates they broke you could you could kind of look back at the deposit history of Silicon Valley Bank and see how they probably made a similar mistake. And the, the problem really happened in, in early 2022 when their deposits first started to decline. And historically, the bank's deposits had never really declined significantly, even in past crises. So at this point, they'd already made the decision to go farther out the risk curve and increase the duration of their assets. They can't lend enough venture debt in order to balance out those assets. So venture debt's only 7% of their portfolio. So the rest had to be purchased as treasuries. So they ended up with a lot of 10-year treasuries at very low rates. And when interest rates went up, they're on the wrong side of the trade. And you know, I guess this is just kind of one of those things that happens time and time again, instead of biting the bullet when the problem arose, they chose to take more risk. And what's really interesting about the story is that their, I think it was their chief risk officer left the company in that first quarter of 22, right, Jason? 
Yeah, I believe April of 22. Yeah. So basically, if you look at her timing, departure was pretty well aligned with when it became clear, likely if you had that inside information, that there were going to be problems. So, uh, And they didn't fill that position until January of this year. So that's a yeah. whole eight months. Yeah. So, so hindsight's 2020, but the, the thing is regional banks are really important to whether it's local communities or in the case of Silicon Valley Bank was a really key banking provider of startups because most banks really struggle to understand startups. You go to, you to even if you, even opening accounts and operating a business that, you know, the concept of a, a cash burning startup just doesn't, doesn't resonate with a lot of banks it's very likely somebody will step in and start to provide some of those services. But I think it's a bit of a breakdown of trust. You had VCs that really started the run on the bank. And these are VCs who really, most of them pushed all of their companies to be clients of Silicon Valley Bank because of the good relationships that they had had and the network of trust that was there. And I think that's all broken down. So it's going to have major repercussions, I think, throughout the startup community. And then within the venture debt space, there's probably a lot less competition because they were able to lend at a lower rate than others. And just for clarity, their venture debt lending was actually historically very good. I mean, obviously, we'll find out if if they did a poor job of underwriting during the pandemic, but they sit on the top of the capital stack. And any of the VCs that are out there claiming that venture debt is a toxic asset, that means that any company that is in their portfolio that has venture debt, that means that their equity is basically worthless if that venture debt is toxic because the equity gets wiped out before that debt gets paid back. So yeah, there's been a lot of misperceptions and and a lot of skewering of Silicon Valley Bank in some cases correctly, and in some cases it wasn't quite warranted. Yeah, I I would just add to the uh, another point to that mismatch in duration is when the VCs give these startups money, they kind of expect them to spend it within two years. So if you think of every startup as an experiment, they, they have a set of milestones, they give you a, a slug of money, and you're going to spend that money and validate whether you can hit those milestones or not. So if you don't hit them, you know, you're, you're just another failed startup, and that's fine. But if you do hit them, it's always expected that there's a bigger, bigger check down the road. And, you know, they, they kind of encourage this reckless spending that we that we've seen and the and the overstaffing that we've seen. So just kind of added to it, added to the to the outflows at SVB. Yeah. Hey, hey Jason, Mike, who would the number two participant be? In other words, if you if you move from Silicon Valley Bank, who else is in the business of of providing commercial banking services to startups? So within my network, there's a bank called PacWest that acquired another bank called Square One. Square One was very focused on startups, and PacWest acquired them. They're a little more, at least in our area, they're a little more focused on life sciences, but they have a concentration there. I do know that J.P. Morgan has moved down into startups because Silicon Valley Bank would top out with their venture debt loans at around $20 million, is my understanding. And... JP Morgan was happy to get involved above that level. And, you know, the venture debt piece was a lot of the reason that most of those startups would bank with Silicon Valley Bank. I should also point out that a lot of the services that Silicon Valley Bank provided enabled startups to stay private longer 
they provided different ways to get liquidity for early employees, for example, that wanted to buy a house, right? You end up with all of this illiquid capital. I mean, they, they provided some unique ways that were still within the risk constraints of the bank and relatively small in size to their total capital base that, that enabled a lot of that stuff. So I, I, I'm actually hopeful from, from an investor perspective that more startups will go public earlier rather than wait as long as they have, especially in this last cycle. And what are people saying? Is it likely that someone, you know, a JP Morgan or Wells Fargo or someone will come and try to acquire the, the business of Silicon Valley Bank as some time goes by and all the people that want to leave have left in, in, in terms of depositors? Or or is this is this kind of lack of confidence or trust or, you know, kind of make the franchise not very interesting to a larger bank who, who would try to acquire the business of Silicon Valley Bank? I, I can hypothesize. I can't give you anything definitive, but my perspective is there was an auction held on Sunday that didn't result in any bidders. And I think there was an auction yesterday and I haven't heard anything about bidders. So and the actions of the VCs in essentially causing the bank run tells me that maybe the reputation of Silicon Valley Bank is is not any longer seen as an asset. Right. I think there, across the political spectrum, there's some reluctance to provide some type of support to an acquirer saying, you know, the, you know, kind of bad bank, good bank, we'll take the bad bank, you know, you get the good bank, which is the way things were done in early 08. You'll remember that Bear Stearns and I think Washington Mutual both went into J.P. Morgan, and then there was all kinds of an effort to try to find a merger partner for Lehman Brothers. And in fact, the merger partner for Lehman Brothers with a you know, contracted deal was Barclays, but the head of the Bank of England at the time over the weekends or before weekend said he, they weren't going to support Barclays acquiring Lehman. And so what happened was the Lehman board was advised that they should declare bankruptcy over the weekend. And the Federal Reserve U.S. Treasury team working on it, you know, decided to let it go forward and then they got a really bad case of contagion in the end they had to put up a great deal of money to kind of stop the contagion that had started with the bankruptcy of of Lehman so i think think having been through that the progressive side of the democratic party and the kind of the over toward the very conservative part of the Republican Party is measured by House members, senators, are allied in the idea that, that these things should be allowed to fail. I think they go along with the idea that depositors over and above the 250000 per depositor insured by the FDIC should be, should be backed, the decision that was made over the weekend. There's a good Financial Times article this morning about it. Apparently, after they figured out what they wanted to do and got the president and his 
head of staff and Brian Brainerd to sign off on it, they convened a meeting by Zoom of senators and congressmen and women too. They got very few objections, you know, during their 30-minute Zoom call or whatever they did to make sure they were involving, you know, the Senate and the House. However, I think if their plan had been that we're going to have Elon Musk come in and rescue Silicon Valley Bank the way he rescued Twitter, I, I think that, you know, I think I think that would have been politically not feasible. What may happen now is that some group of equity investors, after enough time goes by, will come and in effect say, we'll put up, you know, $100 million to get Silicon Valley Bank back operating. And I don't know about the timing of that, but I predict that sometime in the next 30 or 45 days. I think in the interim, the FDIC will sell off assets, loans, possibly uh, venture capital uh, investments or portfolio venture capital investments. So I think it's a reasonable prediction that Silicon Valley Bank will emerge or an institution will emerge called Silicon Valley Bank sometime in the next 60 or 90 days financed by people looking to make a smart investment, but it'll be a much smaller than the bank that existed. I think with Credit Suisse, something similar will happen. The Credit Suisse was in the process of taking their investment banking business, doing mergers and financings and whatnot, and doing a public offering in the US led by a Credit Suisse board member named Michael Carpenter, who's got a pretty good reputation I think the Credit Suisse, it'll take longer than putting Silicon Valley Bank back together again. But I think at some point in you know months, not weeks, the, the Swiss Central Bank having kind of supervised the management of Credit Suisse, I think that there'll be kind of a rights offering or something that will recapitalize the bank and then probably a public offering for the investment banking business in the U.S. But the tricky part of it, which I'll have to deal with over the weekend, is what what to do in the interim. Say Citibank has 400 million open. They can't have people start to decide putting Citibank stock in a tailspin and having people say maybe maybe <clears throat> Citibank isn't a counterparty. That the way to understand these banks. And I'm an oil and gas expert. I'm not an expert on banking. I could be completely wrong on what happens over this weekend. But what I think is going to happen is not a cause for panic to sell all your equities or just, you know, feel that, you know, the year's a wash because of all this activity or that things are going to get worse. I think that that the Federal Reserve and the different banking authorities in Europe will kind of get through this. And there's this huge pressure to make it before the Asian markets open. So I think that us taxpayers are going to get another, you know, another weekend of work out of the regulators. In terms of impact on the price of oil, I think that the movement of Russian crude depends importantly on these trading firms from VTOL on down. 
And uh, I think the lines that those banks need to operate because they operate with, you know, 10 or 15 to one debt to equity. And those are all lines which are come from European banks, JP Morgan, Citibank, do not finance traders. So I think those will all be reduced. And I think in the trading community, there'll be less capability to move Russian crude because Russian crude is being sanctioned, but rather than going to Rotterdam, it goes to India or something. Well, that, that's accomplished by trading firms. I think so. I think the initial impact will be to see some weakness in oil prices because those trading firms will be offloading cargoes, offering oil for sale in order to get enough cash to keep the contraction of their trading lines from causing too much damage to their bottom line. In the two, three month period, I think China uses a lot of this crude. India will figure out ways to provide the credit lines, but that's gonna take some time to accomplish. So I think the immediate impact of the price of oil will be some weakness. And other than that, Mike and Jason, we completely ignored the, the, the stocks we follow. Do you see any uh, winners amongst the Microsofts and Apples and NVIDIAs and, and Taiwan Semiconductors and whatnot, Salesforces, the kinds of companies uh, we spend time uh, on, these, uh, on these calls talking about? Just to introduce the subject, you don't see any particular losers. All these companies have very, very good balance sheets with good cash flow statements. So I, I think the, most of these larger tech companies are in the enviable position of not relying on debt markets or equity markets or whatnot to do their business. But with that, just to close the 30 minutes out, any comments on on anyone, any any things, any things you see out there that you're concerned about amongst those companies? I don't have a concern, but I have a dark horse that maybe we can expand on next week, which would be Meta Facebook, specifically in the the language models that we've been talking about recently. Right. Good. Well, listen, uh, we'll definitely have Facebook on the calendar next week, and I suspect you know the events this weekend will have some commentary on that too, and. Uh, I'll look hard to try to make that exhibit see uh, more representative of what's going on in the oil markets. With that, everyone stay well and be healthy. We'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 